incredible. Uh, Jeffrey, before we jump into your book and all this amazing stuff you've been doing, I have to tell you a very short little story. Because go, go, go. So you have um, harassed me for many, many years about my uh, pauperish appearance and my t-shirts and all this stuff. And you, you know, you're like a proper man should wear a suit and a tie. And so you'll love this. I go on this podcast. It's like this sports marketing agency podcast because they have a program for helping young people break into the career. And so I'm talking about careers. I go to the podcast. They say, send me a headshot. I send them the headshot that I send everybody. And it's surprisingly enough, it's one of the few headshots where I actually have a collar on, but I just have like a plaid button down shirt with a collar and that's it. I send it to them. They tweet out today, we were pleased to have Isaac Morehouse on a podcast and they have this promo image. And they took that headshot and they photoshopped a suit and tie onto me. No, that is so, <laughs> so Somebody there must have been like, hey, this guy doesn't look professional enough. Would you put a suit on him for <laughs> That is hilarious. Uh, you know, it's funny. I think back, I, I completely forgot about that. But, you know, that was a very interesting exchange because, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most... Um, well, I, people don't th think of me as being a blunt person, and I, I'm not, you know? I, I tend to avoid conflicts and, you know, that sort of thing. And it was interesting because I remember when we had that exchange, you know, I think of you as a friend, right? And, 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 and I kind of feel a little bit passionate about the subject. And I thought, you know, and I was stewing about this, not, not out of anger, you know, and not out of anything other than I felt like I could, I just wanted to add, what I thought was like an, like an insight to you, that I, I, I was intrigued what would happen, you know, if, if I confronted you with this weird truth. And, um, and, 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 and you were great because you came back, you know, with uh, just as blunt a kind of point. And I think we, it was an email exchange, right? Yeah. Not even in person. And then I kind of came back again. And it was, it was great because we were, we were not ferocious, but we were truthful with each other about our views. Yeah, I'm pretty and, sure you said something like, you know, people just look like slobs. And I said, people in suits look like clowns. And we were both very blunt. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a nice, and you know, that's the great thing about a good friendship. You can, you can do that, you know? You don't have to sort of be a, a dance around subjects. And say, if you're really friends, you've got a good solid friendship and, and you're intellectuals, so you care about what's true and that sort of thing. And you and I care about like, a ton of the same stuff yeah and and it was just funny that we had these like really divergent opinions on you know what is probably ultimately a trivial matter in some way well it's fun it's kind of the same reason i enjoy i enjoy sports because it's one arena where me and my friends i can like just rip on them for their opinions about their teams but it doesn't mean anything in real life and none of us care it's like it's almost like a playing at having a fight because right. it's in a low stakes environment. Um, right, 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 right. Okay, this right. is a good segue, actually. Well, because and the, the other thing, the other thing the book is about. I'm sorry to. No, no. One, no. one last point on this is that um, I remember f thinking, so actually, let me put this another way. My exchange with you helped me re-understand my own position. You know, right? I mean, it's like I had an insight over that exchange that was, I thought, kind of new in my head because I had to formulate it in a way for you and that helped me learn something. So even though I didn't convince you, I became personally like 
I think better off uh, because of the exchange, because I was able to like rethink um, my own rationale and think and think. So anyway, I, I hope we both benefited from that. Oh, absolutely. I loved it. And it actually helped me too, because when you were like, maybe we should do a podcast discussing this, it made me realize that I don't care enough about that issue to even, do. I think I told you, I was like, eh, I don't even know that I want, because I don't want to be known as the anti-suit guy. Like it's not part of my brand. I don't care. I just don't like wearing it myself. And I'm, I'm not even willing to defend it to anyone else. I'm not willing to tell anyone else that they shouldn't. It's purely like, like maybe I'm, I realize like, I don't even know. I might just be being lazy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. Well, you know, something similar is true for me too. You know that I get calls pretty much not, not all the time, but like sporadically from, from, uh, uh, companies that specialize in what do you call like like image molding you know like like yeah yeah like uh like, like your personal brand branding yeah branding yeah. companies and like can, can you come on and and explain to us what you know about personal branding and i'm like i don't know anything <laughs> about that subject actually <laughs> what I, you know you think that i sat down one day and said who do i want to be i think i'll be a guy with a you know and like I, that's not true I've just been, you know, I, I wear this because I'm comfortable, basically. And, uh, and I don't care. You know, during lockdowns, there were times here at the house where it was just me alone. And I found that I had to get dressed up even to write a good article. So, you know, this is... It puts you in have, the frame. Yeah. It puts yeah, you it, we all have different ways about us. But I'm not some sort of brand. People ask me this all the time, like, how did you come up with your brand? It's like, I don't have a brand. I'm <laughs> just, <that> just me. <laughs> so, so, you know, you were saying how it was fun to be able to you know, debate and disagree and, and be blunt with each other without, without feeling like we need to convince each other or that it's going to be some threat to our relationship. Right. That is exactly, and I know this sounds very cliche and silly, but that is exactly what I feel we need more of even when the stakes are higher. So take all this stuff with coronavirus. Right. When this thing first was coming out, I remember seeing, especially because I follow a lot of venture capitalists and people in the startup world, the Silicon Valley world, and they were like the first to just immediately be like, you know, everybody needs, and everybody was making fun of them. The media was making fun of them, whatever. And I immediately, my immediate reaction is like, I always tend to think these health risks are overblown. I just tend to think people have a weird assessment of risk in general. Like, mm -hmm. look, if, if I'm going to catch some pandemic, like I'm not going to just stop living and hope that I don't get sick. I'd rather live and risk my, you know, like I, that's my general approach. So I was a little bit like, why are these guys so worked up? But I remember just asking a question being like, well, you know, what do you think is the worst case? Or I don't remember what I asked a skeptical question to some. And it was like, immediately everyone was like anti-science you're anti. And I'm like, no, I'm literally curious to know. I just want to know. And that inability to discuss, I think, is one of the overarching themes to what the topic of your book is, which is the, uh, what is it called? Liberty and Lockdown? Liberty or Lockdown, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, so, I'm so happy about this thing. It, it's, it's, we just sent the, the final description to the cover creator and that sort of thing. So probably by tomorrow morning, I'll have a, get, a good look at the cover. Then it gets typeset. It'll probably appear within the next 10 days, two weeks, something like that. <clears throat> and it's going to, be important for me because I've, I've, I've written about this, you know, as you know, since, uh, since January 27th was my first article on the topic. And, and I've written about it like constantly ever since. And I, I feel like for me, the appearance of this book is 
I like to think it's going to do some good, um, but also it's it's going to be a little bit of psychological, like at least I'm closing the the, the chapter, if not the book. I'm, I'm I'm finishing one chapter of my life here, and um, and I worked really hard to integrate a lot of my thoughts over the last uh, six months on this and and put it in a coherent way. Also, unlike all my other books, uh, this one has. I don't know, 275 footnotes or something like that, precisely because of the, you know, the credibility issues and that sort of thing. So, um, uh, I, you know, it's, it's interesting, this, this issue, um, uh, Isaac, you know, some people think it's politically um, predictable where you stand on, on lockdowns uh, based on your support for the left or the right or whatever. And, and it's, I, I'm not sure, so sure that's true. I mean, I've met people from so many different ideological perspectives, and we're all kind of working on this anti-lockdown point, you know, that, you know, whatever the problem with the virus is, you don't just throw away the Bill of Rights, human rights, you know, the freedom of travel and quarantines, everything, uh, because you, you think you have a solution to this pathogen. It's very dangerous. And I think it's brought people together from a lot of different uh, uh, political uh, ways of thinking. I ran an article this morning called like, something like what what what's wrong with the left the liberal left and and their celebration of these lockdowns and it was a very sincere article by a public defender uh in uh, uh new york's uh, state government um you just alarmed about the extent to which the left has acquiesced to these uh really come down to totalitarian measures so it's been a fascinating intellectual journey for me and, well, and i'm sure you're going to get to this at some point but We've both been disappointed by the by the response within the, what we used to call the liberty movement. Yeah. Oh my gosh, we're definitely going to get to that because it's abysmal and it deserves a mention. Um, t- tell me, okay, this has been one of the most one of the most surprising, I almost say shocking at times, epochs in my life because it has it has revealed to me things that I just didn't think, like the concept of the Overton window of political possibility. I thought I had a rough idea where the Overton window was. Now I feel like the whole Overton window has been smashed. I feel like almost anything is on the table right now. Like I wouldn't be surprised if someone advocated ending all taxation or if someone indicated complete totalitarianism. Like everything seems within the realm of it's, it's so hard. So the, the instability, yeah. the unpredictability. Oh, I know. Crazy. I think you and I are a little bit the same in the sense that I think we both never, maybe we've never said this to to ourselves, but we've always kind of taken it as a tacit uh, presumption that you and I have a, like a connection with the, like I've, we have a finger on some aspect of the cultural pulse. Yeah. I, I, I used to think I did. <laughs> I did too. I mean, I spent my entire career thinking that yeah, I think I got this, you know, I, I think, I think people want to be free. I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I, there's certain things I just presume. There's certain, politics can never bust through, you know, settled law. Uh, this country values its civic uh, conventions, uh, freedom and bravery. Um, we'll always have the right to travel abroad. Um, you know, just basic postulates like that I thought were incontrovertible, you know? When, when, I, when I heard, this was, this was when the moment of innocence was lost and my worldview was really shattered. When I heard, and I had come off of a two-week, I took a two-week fast from all screens of all kinds, from, mm-hmm. just for separate reasons, right at the beginning of March. I get off of that March 15th, the Ides of March, and I'm excited for March Madness to watch the basketball tournament. And I hear someone say, oh, they're, they're talking about canceling it. And I'm like, good luck. You can take a lot of things away from Americans. You can't take sports from them. And then it was like, boom, the entire basketball season's over. There's no March Madness this year. And I was like, 
oh my God, what else is possible? That was yeah. a really, almost a traumatic moment for me. Yeah, I think it was maybe March 8th, March 9th, something like that, when uh, South by Southwest was canceled. And I thought, I was overwhelmed, right? Because I, I thought, look at all the hotel reservations that have been shattered by force. The plane uh, reservations that are now made useless by force. Uh, all the the uh, the d distributors and the displayers and all you know the people that 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 come to South. I mean, how many people go to ten ten thousand or something like that? Maybe it's more. And um, and they their their plans were just overnight scrapped by the Austin city uh, government. And I thought this can't happen in America. My first article was something like, was, was not my first, it was my second article, why this draconian response to the coronavirus. And I remember at the time wondering, because things got much worse, right? I mean, it was March 12th then that Trump banned international travel. March 13th, CDC came out with a Soviet-style central plan and so on. And then within, a, and then schools were all canceled by March 16th and it was dreadful times. But I remember thinking at the time, am I gonna regret having um, uh, written this article? Like is, is closures and shutdowns and lockdowns and cancellations by force, now so woven into the uh, presumption of how we do business in this country that people are gonna to point to that article and say, look at Tucker, he's crazy. He wants everybody to die of a disease. But I, I didn't take it down. And, and I think in, in retrospect, it, it does hold up. I don't think a South by Southwest should have been canceled. There was a fact, um, I'm not sure if there's anybody who would have attended that event who would have been vulnerable to the coronavirus at all. So it shouldn't have been canceled. Okay, tell me if you, if you share this with me as a lifelong kind of libertarian, I, I shudder to use that word anymore because I don't know if it holds any meaning, but has maybe more baggage than it does clarity. But someone who values human freedom in, in all of its forms, did you expect in 2019 the next big threat to human liberty to be a uh, public health technocracy? Like, I did not see that coming. I did not see that coming oh, I, at all. I will tell you this, Isaac, that my first article on this topic was written in 2005 and I had warned all the way back then, it's an article that's now in the book called Bourbon for Breakfast. And I was talking about George Bush's uh, plans for the avian bird flu and, and, and telling people, look, they can quarantine you. Uh, here's what they're, they're talking about, forceful closures of schools and so on and so on. But even then, you know, as a kind of a guy who writes about this stuff all the time, I was more alarmed, not about the possibility of it actually happening, but just that the plans were out there on the table. And I thought that was enough of an outrage. Like clearly we should remove this option. And yeah, yeah, like these emergency powers, it's scary right. that they even exist. No, they probably won't be used. You know, you don't expect them used. to be used. I never expected anything remotely like this. And, and I've written so much to try, to try to understand exactly uh, what went wrong. And I don't think we're, we're anywhere close to coming up with it. But, you know, the, the explanation has something to do with media panic. I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the hatred of Trump, you know, and the fact that the, the impeachment didn't work has something to do with it. I, I think uh, ignorance of immunology and, and viruses has something to do with it. And, and just a basic forgetfulness of, of the human spirit. Uh, it all plays in together. The, you know, the triumph of the gamers over the, over the medicine, uh, over the doctors back in 2006 uh, under the George Bush administration has a lot to do with it. There's all this, it was like a perfect storm. But even then, it, def it still defies explanation. Okay, so... Before we, before we talk about kind of the, the response from self-styled 
Liberty people. Um, kind of the two big issues that weave into things that you've written about your entire career that I see coming out of this that it helped reveal to me was just the extent to which the extent to which sort of the abuse of the abuse of reason or the abuse of uh, the idea of knowledge or expertise and the underappreciation for the role of open experimentation and idea sharing. So this Hayekian idea of knowledge being distributed everywhere, you need price systems because they're information wrapped in incentives in order to tease out people that have skills that they themselves didn't even realize until they became economically valuable and all this kind of stuff. When you have this health thing, hey, there appears to be some new kind of sickness. It's a new set of symptoms. It seems to be correlated with a, a particular virus. Here, here's some, some data. What you would want ideally is you'd want everybody who has on the ground health you know, experience or interactions independently saying, well, here, what I found was that this patient had something totally different. Here's my findings. Well, I tried this hydroxychloroquine thing and here's what I got. Oh, well, I had this. And then you have a million experiments and you have all this sharing. Instead, it was like an instant CDC says, it's this, this is how it works. This is how it's transmitted. Masks don't matter at all. Everybody obey us. Okay, now masks absolutely matter. Everybody wear masks. And like completely closing down just the scope for experimentation and tapping into that dispersed knowledge. Like this is a moment where I wish every health professional had been forced to read Hayek, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but you know, uh, so what you're describing is very interesting because it does take us back to a White House conference uh, in, in 2005 and 2006, um, where George Bush was concerned about biochemical warfare, and he had two general camps there presenting, uh, one the doctors and one the gamers. Um, the doctors ma made a presentation that went something like what you just said. So Bush is like, okay, what do we do if, if, if a terrible pathogen is unleashed on us by a, by a foreign enemy? What do we do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And we know what he did after 9-11, right? He invaded a country. He, he was interested in these apocalyptic scenarios. But the doctors showed up and they're like, well, you know, viruses are, eh, they're tricky. You know, we, we've been doing a million year uh, deadly dance with him, you know, and we have these immune systems that adapt to him. The, Bad viruses kill quickly. The smart viruses kind of spread abroad because they don't kill. So we have to figure out which one of those is. Is it, is it H1N1 from 1918 or is it H1N1 from 2009? Is it, is it Ebola or is it the, the bird flu? Is it, um, it going to be a, a flu or a coronavirus, a species of the common cold? You know what I'm saying? So once we figure that out, then we have to figure out who the vulnerable population is. You know, is it the oldest, young as a polio that tended to hit young girls between the age of, you know, uh, nine and 14 and, and maim them for life? Or is, it, or is it the Hong Kong flu that really severely attacked pregnant women? You don't, you don't always know. We do know that older people have weaker immune systems, so they tend to be more vulnerable than anybody else. But it's not always the case. Sometimes children can be targeted by these viruses. Other times, virus leaves them completely alone. So we have to kind of find out what that consists of and then, uh, and then craft our policy response, you know, uh, to that. All right, Bush by this time is asleep. In the <laughs> Anybody else got anything better, right? So then the gamers show up, right? Led by Robert Glass from Sandia National Laboratories. 
his daughter, Laura M., who came up with the idea of social distancing in her high school for a project for a high school science fair based on a cooties model, you know? And, and then their acolyte, Carter Meacher, now newly landed a job at the VA after his failed medical career in Chicago. And they presented a, a, a PowerPoint presentation with 3D slides. And everybody showed up together, the virus shows up. What do we do? Everybody fall apart. Boom, 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 boom. Everybody separates six feet apart. Now they've got masks on. Now the schools are closed. You know, now the businesses are closed. Nobody's allowed to go to the park. There's big bubbles drawn around everybody. How long does this last? Oh, uh, you know, a few weeks, maybe a few months, something like that. Then what happens? Well, um, well, um, I guess the virus doesn't find a host, so the virus moves back to where it came from. Where did it come from? Well, look, the point is that we need social distancing and these closures and the central plan. And Bush is like, you know what? That's pretty impressive. So he ordered the CDC in 2006 to write all this stuff in there. Now they use fancy language, targeted layered containment, TLC, targeted layered containment. It used to mean tender loving care, right? But no, in the age of uh, uh, Bush and his virus containment strategies, it meant targeted layered containment. And then uh, social distancing, which is an oxymoron if you've ever heard one. You can't be both distance and social. It doesn't mean anything. And, and then uh, there's other things. Oh, curve flattening, all right? That's when we first came up with curve flattening. If everybody gets sick, the hospitals, uh, the hospitals are well, so we have to be keeping people apart and so on. So that's, this is all hatched in this period. And it's sat on the shelf for 14 years, undeployed. Um, and, 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 but the conflict between the doctors and the gamers never really went away. Now, what happened was that uh, a, a lot of the gamers experienced a windfall of cash in the, over the 14 years from the Gates Foundation, who, who bought a series of epidemiological departments in academia around the world, some of which he liked, some of which he didn't like. Guess which ones he liked? He liked the ones that used and deployed computer models, not the ones that deployed medicine and therapeutics and boring old doctor stuff. So you can compare the two uh, institutions in London. One, the Imperial College. Other, Oxford University. Oxford University has evidence-based medicine. That's what they call it. Imperial College features the great work of Neil Ferguson who predicted 2.2 million Americans are going to die through his fancy computer model. They're the well-funded ones, and they ended up being the ones paid attention by the media. Meanwhile, the Oxford people have been screaming for six months, can we cut this out? The virus is going to virus. We need herd immunity. That's how you solve it. And media can't get it, won't even pay attention to these uh, mega professionals. Same thing, you know, uh, the difference between... Um, well, there are epidemiological departments in this, in this country. Yale is a little bit of a lockdown department. Harvard, on the other hand, is a herd immunity department. So which one gets the money? It's Yale, not Harvard. So you know, there's a lot going on here. And, and to understand this division and to understand the extent to which the gamers really did appeal to the central planning mindset of public health authorities. You don't have to know a lick of medicine to be a public health authority. Um, and, and to the politicians who want power and are afraid of being blamed for any consequences for failure to act. So the precautionary principle comes into play, and boom, they blew up the world. You know, it's funny. <clears throat> there is so many layers to this thing that I found, because um, you, can, you can question almost everything from 
the testing to uh, the, the data, the reporting, the, you know, whether or not the test is accurate, then whether or not, even if it is accurate, the reporting is accurate and whether the incentives for reporting are accurate and then whether the treatments that are being proposed are actually effective and then whether the lockdowns or the social distancing or the masks are effective. And each of these is like a world into itself. All of them, the more you dig, seem to be filled with a lot of bad ideas. Oh, but it's, it's like too overwhelming to be like, because you almost get to a point where you feel like, Everything everyone is saying about coronavirus, it's just all untrue. Like everything is fake news. You feel it's, like, it's, but it's crazy. Layers on layers on layers. And you look at these charts online, worldometer. Oh, I'll look up a country, coronavirus country. Uh, what country? I want to look at Austria. And you've got these beautiful curves. And then suddenly you think, is anything about this true? You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, the New York Times just about four days ago ran an article that I had to read like five times even to believe it. But they had uh, they had looked at tests during one week in August from Massachusetts and concluded because they're all PCR tests. And apparently PCR tests, you can just adjust the dial slightly and make everybody sick or nobody sick. Yep. And they said that most of these tests are done with the with the uh, with the cycle ratio or something on the PCR test is is too intense, and so it detects things that are basically irrelevant, just traces yeah. that are not transmissible. And what percentage of tests they said did this? Ninety percent. Oh, okay. So I'm glad you mentioned the test because of all these different areas, this is the only one that I have personally actually gone kind of deep on, and it's a weird coincidence. So I told you I had this two week screen ho- holiday. During this time, and this was when Corona was just a, blur, a murmur and I thought it was just going away, I just happened to pick up a physical book because I was only reading physical books during these two weeks called uh, Surfing, the, uh, what is it called? Surfing the Mind Field by Dr. Kerry Mullis. I didn't know anything about him. T.K. Coleman gave me this book like 10 years ago and said this is a fun book and it's just about all these random things. So I read his book and there's one chapter in there and he's the inventor of PCR, this process to uh, duplicate DNA. And he won the Nobel prize for it. And he's a very kind of iconoclastic rebellious guy, but very brilliant in biochemistry. And so I read about PCR and then there's a chapter in there about how near the end of his career, they started using PCR to try to diagnose AIDS. And he claimed and maintained to his death that the HIV AIDS connection has never been proven and that there's no, they've never isolated and proven this is causal. There's too many holes in the story. There's some correlation, but not causation. And like, he just was really flummoxed by how bad the science was and all the money. As soon as someone said, we found out what causes AIDS, it's a virus. We can take care of it. Just give us money. All of his colleagues would just start chasing this money. Now I didn't know enough to know whether he was right about the connection to HIV and AIDS, but I started researching when I came out of this screen fast, I started Googling and I learned all about all of the things he said about PCR tests. He's like, it's absolutely useless as a diagnostic tool. It's absurd to try to use it that way. It's not what it's for. It's for the production of DNA, blah, blah, blah. So then I start seeing these tests about coronavirus, all these people testing positive. And I just had this curiosity. I was like, I wonder what they're using to test it with. I Googled it and it turns out total coincidence. This thing that I had just learned about, I'm not normally studying biochemistry. It's the PCR test. And I go down this rabbit hole to be like, have there been improvements to it since Kerry Mullis was talking about it? Have they changed anything? Have, and it turns out like everything about it, it's, it's so bad that you basically could roll a dice and to, to decide who you think. Like it's so bad to the point of being useless. The layers of problems with this test as a diagnostic tool, there's no standard they have to choose for, like you said, how many cycles they run. It'll detect anything that's RNA and it's not clear whether that's coronavirus, another virus, or something that's not even viral. The, the viral load is impossible to detect. So you can't tell how much it is. 
it's like, even if you know for sure this virus causes these symptoms, which even that seems unclear sometimes, this test is just an utterly useless measure, but it has just from day one been universally appealed to. And so that fact alone, I was just feeling like a crazy person. I felt like the world was gaslighting me. I'm like, has nobody else, I'm like reading PubMed, I'm, I'm diving into stuff way over my head. I'm looking for anything to prove that I'm missing something here and I couldn't find it. Right, yeah, yeah. That's no, that's ex that's ex exactly right. Um, yeah, it's 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 uh, and and we've redefined what what sick means too, right? I mean, so so everybody's asymptomatically sick, you know. It's like uh, I'm sick of the Beatles, but asymptomatically, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, but but you know, and and so it turns out, you know, at least according to the New York Times article, that ninety percent of these tests, uh, people are not actually sick. They've got traces of the virus, was all asymptomatic and therefore non-transmissible. Which is another point, right? One of the reasons the lockdowns were extended is because of silence spreaders. You feel fine, but actually you're spreading coronavirus everywhere, right? And and that's what. And the World Health Organization one day came out and said, that seems to be extremely rare. Do you remember that day? And, I remember. And, I think I remember you tweeting about it. Yeah, and there was an explosion, like, no, that's wrong. And, and so the next day they're like, well, we were just a little bit uh, didn't mean to misspeak about that. So it's it's um, uh, we don't well, know why, enough. Why is we there, don't know enough? Okay, where is that coming from, Jeff? That even when the CDC, the WHO, the, the people that everyone are appealing to, when they make any claim that is not 100% doomsday-ish. Why right. is there so, like, where is this urge, this, this group of people that want this to be the worst possible thing it can be? It, so, I don't you know, what is that? I, I think, you know what I think it is? I think it's a herd mentality among the press. And, and I've watched this and you have too for years. And, and the font of everything is the New York Times, right? Whatever the, New York, whatever the line the New York Times is taking, uh, that is a way of, of telling the entire uh, world media apparatus, this is what's say. Now, this is not a conspiracy. This is just careerism. Like if you are writing your obituaries for the Montgomery, uh, Alabama advertiser, what do you want to do? You want to write crime stories for the Montgomery advertiser. What do you do then? Well, you want to write political politics for Montgomery advertiser, and then you want to be noticed by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And then once you write a, an impressive a political story of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, then you want to get picked up by the Washington Post and so on. So everybody's aspirational, but, but journalists don't have any, you know, they, they want to say the thing they know will advance them in their careers. Now, how do you know? Well, you go to the top. What do the people at the top, that's the New York Times, what do they say? And, and I'll say that, and then I'll eventually get that. This is true for almost everybody in journalism. Because in journalism, I tell you, it's a brutal world. We're a world. If you write one story that is outside, you know, the Overton window, as you say, and you accidentally quote a crank or dabble in some theory that's not fashionable or something like that, you're killed. The paper hates you, you get fired, you lose your job, you can't get another job. So it's a very, very delicate job. The only way you know how to be safe and, 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 and rise up is by saying the thing you're supposed to say, which is what the New York Times says. On February 27th, the New York Times Daily Podcast did an interview with their virus reporter, Daniel McNeil, uh, Donald McNeil, my apologies, in which he predicted that 6.6 .6 million Americans could die from the coronavirus, 6.6 .6 million. So like triple the number that even the Imperial College was predicting. That was the beginning. So that within 10 days of that podcast, the entire American press was like, 
apocalyptic on this virus and they can't change. And I don't think they will. Yeah, why, why can't they go back? I mean, seeing the latest CDC report that's like, okay, if you remove all the comorbidities and the average age being people that were basically going to die anyway, you have what, 10,000 people in America that have died from coronavirus alone? We're talking like orders of magnitude of being wrong that boggle the mind. So at what point can you say, okay, we might've overestimated, like, are they just too committed and they just like feel they have to double down or do they really believe this? You know, what's your guess on that? These journalists, do they really believe that it's that catastrophic? No. Uh, one they week can't. after, no. One week after that CDC uh, announcement was on their website, the New York <laughs> Times ran an article that said, you can no longer trust the CDC. This is that. <laughs> after six months of saying, trust the CDC. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. And sometimes I think there's an element of cynicism to the media, you know, that, that the, the purpose is not to promote the truth. The pur purpose is to broadcast the approved narrative. And I think, I think this is a problem. This is not true for all the press, right? But it's just for the mainstream, you know, the, for the aspirationally minded, uh, you know, kind of like what we think of the establishment press. But there's there's been plenty of venues out there that have just been fantastic. I'm, and I'm on all of them, you know, and uh, all the time and, and, and love it. And, and I, this is, I think, this is naive me talking again. I'm, I'm like you, I'm questioning everything I think I know about the world. But, but um, I do think that this is going to help promote a certain incredulity towards the media. I know myself, we should all, we should talk about the ways in which we've improved during lockdown. One of the ways in which I've improved is that I've lost my news addiction, like completely. I had my Google Home set for eight hours of news every day. I didn't listen to eight hours, but I could if I wanted to. And I would listen every morning for at least two hours. You know, I'd wake up at, at 4.30 and turn, turn it on, lazily listen that as it went. Um, I don't do that anymore. I mean, I'm, I'm shocked at how much of my life I've wasted listening to news that's actually, I'm sorry to use the word, but fake. You know, no, it's, it's funny because that's one of the early, when this started happening, March, April, I, I had a lot of hope because I think the news credibility, it was already lower than it's probably been in a long time, took such a major hit that I thought, oh good, this will be over soon. Because the number of things, we're talking like absurdity level, where there would be a news reporter that would say, I'm standing in front of this hospital, there's lines out the door. And then a real person would go there with a camera like an hour later and it would be empty. And there are people reports on the ground in Michigan at a clinic where they said they actually paid us as actors to stand in line so they could get B footage and make it look like this clinic was full. Like literal stuff like that where they were faking footage. Yeah. And like there was enough of these. It wasn't one or two. There was a whole subreddit dedicated to this and I would browse it. And not all of them were real. Not all of them were credible. They were people trying to, you know, pour fuel on the fire. But there were enough of them. And I knew people personally that were like, no, I read in the paper that this person died of coronavirus and they're my aunt and they didn't. Or I read in the paper that this hospital is overwhelmed. I work there. It's empty. There's crickets there. The, the amount of what I'm seeing with my eyes is a complete contradiction to what I'm being told was so strong that I thought, this is it. The spell is going to be broken. And instead, yeah. everybody decided, okay, the news is all lying, but I'm still okay with the lockdown anyway. Like that yeah. was the weird part for me. It was very strange. Remember, my brother called me. I guess it was about a week into the actual lockdowns. We had 10 days or so. He called me up and said, oh, I'm so sad. You know, my, my very good friend, she's a nurse at the local hospital, and she's being furloughed. And I said, well, what? why is she being furloughed? Well, everybody's being furloughed at the hospital. I said, why is that happening? He said, well, they don't have any business. Do you know, 
and his name is Robert. I said, there's something funny about that. I, I, you know, I'm not saying you're lying to me, but you know, when you get a chance, could you just send me like a story about that or something? And so a couple of days later, he said, oh, here's a finally a story in the newspaper right here. Uh, uh, you know, the local hospital for, for nurses. And I began to look it up and I realized this was happening all over the country. I mean, the hospitals were emptying out. This is because of government mandates. So it's not just that they decided what was the essential and non-essential workers, which is outrageous enough, but they decided what was uh, a uh, elective versus non-elective surgery. And I thought, well, you know, an elective surgery is like, yeah, I'll get a nose job. No, that's not what it means. <laughs> it means anything that you're not going to die immediately if you, if you don't get it. So everything was put off and the hospitals were completely empty. And I think the final numbers are somewhere like 300 hospitals in this country is furloughed workers during the- Well, I, it was so funny because the day that there was a story about how the hospital in Charleston was putting beds in the parking garage and they were taking pictures of it, preparing for this overwhelm that's, that's mm -hmm. coming. The very same day, my neighbor who works in maintenance at the hospital was like, yeah, I'm like laid off indefinitely because there's nothing going on. The hospital is empty. And I'm just like, what, this is such a weird, like the amount of cognitive dissonance being experienced during this time mm -hmm. has been really off the charts. So, okay. So Jeff, you have been my go-to for so many years, mm. not only because you're a great writer and you're a fun thinker and, and I love your, your ideas and you're, you, you know, you I, know I, used to be, I used to be a fun person. I, yeah, well, I'm, I want to, I want to bring back that guy. Yeah, like, right, make Jeffrey fun again. We're going to start <laughs> that campaign, but you are, and I share this, but I think you share it even stronger. You have it even stronger than I do. You're one of the most optimistic people I know. So whenever I'm like, man, I'm feeling like liberty, like the boot of the state is getting heavier. Liberty. I got to go read a Jeff Tucker article. And you're like, hey, let me tell you about this movie that came out and why it's such a great example of how the human spirit is indefatigable, you know, indef get that word right. indefatigable, whatever. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Um, how are you... How are you feel like, are you maintaining your optimism during this? Or do you feel like you are fighting off becoming a cynical old man? Like oh. I feel like I'm fighting off. Oh, look. For the first time in my life. For sure. No, during April and May and, and, and June were extremely rough, right? And not just for you and not just for me. I mean, we know, and, and I'm sure you have friends of yours that have told you, the way they tell you is they come to you and say, you know, I went to a very dark place. You know what that means, right? We know what that means. A, fr a friend of a friend who owned, uh, back in Michigan, he owned two golf courses and seven restaurants, very wealthy, successful guy. He hung himself because he, he, he couldn't keep paying for everything. It was like two or three months in, and he had laid off all of his workforce. He had taken out a big loan to open a new restaurant. He couldn't pay it back. He was in default. Like had a good life insurance policy, left a note for his family. I mean, this is real. This is real stuff, you know? And the data is over, overwhelming. And it's not just, it's not just that you have to have, you know, uh, two off course to seven restaurants and, and be uh, uh, in arrears on your, your debts. Um, the real despair for people came when they realized that the world was very different from the way they thought it was. Like, like young people believed that they had career choices and that they could become this or become that and there was freedom to choose, that we could take a trip to, to Paris if we wanted to, um, that we could go to the neighboring state and not have to quarantine for two. None of us ever imagined anything like this would happen and it shattered everything about what 
our expectations for how the world works. And this is especially true for people under 30, actually, because they had never experienced anything like this. They thought the world was like the following way, and it turns out practically overnight, it was a completely different animal. And that inspired a lot of uh, uh, depression and uh, fear and really uh, despair. Um, people very close to me actually uh, considered exactly what your friend did and and it's it's horrifying and i think it was tough for all of us and and every day i would wake up there were some days when i woke up at the, after march 12th where i nothing like this has ever happened i always look forward to the mornings every day of my life that i could ever remember i looked me, forward me to too morning. yeah and there was there was about 10 days there sometime in late march where i woke up and i heard a uh, T terrifying grim music in my head and and even though the sun was out the world seemed dark and darker than the day before and then i i went to bed that night thinking this is maybe this will all end and get better tomorrow i woke up the next day it seemed even darker and this went on it was it was a very difficult time i've, I've dug out of that though and and i must say that right now i'm 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 outrageously optimistic about the future i think we've been dabbling and control-based mechanisms for muscling society now for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's finally come to a head. And we now we see what they do. They tear us apart from our friends. They tear us away from our loved ones. They don't let us attend our, our, our father's funerals. We can't go on trips. Uh, we're caged animals. They treat us like rats in an experiment. And, 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 and they don't know what they're talking about. The media has been discredited. Public health, is, uh, which has had this high prestige, is now reduced to in, in, in tatters. The politicians we trusted to, uh, to, to tell us what to do and, and because they're smart and they've got resources they know better than us, we now know that just because they have resources uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't mean they know what they're doing. Just because they have high degrees doesn't make them smart. And, and they probably don't know uh, better than us. And, and I think humanity, not just the United States, but all over the world is learning a very, very painful lesson in the absolute necessity of freedom and its superiority in every aspect of life, even in the case of a pandemic. That I think is going to be a lasting lesson and, and it will be gradually discovered over the next five or 10 years. And I think it's, I think it's going to change everything. You know, it's funny on a, on a tactical side almost, or a more practical, you know, in my personal life side, this experience has altered some of the kind of strategic choices that I thought I had. So I've always been a big fan of uh, exit over voice. Hey, if you live somewhere bad, go somewhere better. Shop around for a better jur jurisdiction, right? Like I'm always looking, I want to be as free as possible. And hey, if things get bad enough, I'll take my family and we'll go flee to wherever, right? When this stuff started getting really bad and I realized this is different. I don't, this is not a temporary thing. I don't know the uncertainty level about the future escalated. I started researching pretty hardcore states in the United States, other countries. Should I, should I have my family somewhere else? And what hit me was, I don't know that I can find a place that is provably better. Like I mean, who would have thought Australia, some parts of it, are borderline North Korea right now. That's right. Like that's right. you can't predict. You move to some Caribbean country. Okay, cool. I'm good here. Except what the U.S. military can do whatever they want in these places. Any place that's has a weak government can be controlled by a powerful government. Anywhere right. with a powerful government, it's so global that I've never felt more trapped in my life. And I felt oh, like right. the exit option was less 
on the table than it's ever been. And it kind of forces you to say, well, maybe voice is all I have. Usually I tend to think that like, oh, voice is the easy one. And mm. exit's the one people are kind of afraid of, but really it's the more important one. In this case, it's uh, like, I don't even know how much you can really improve. Where are you going to move to that you feel confident is going to be held harmless from this? Yeah, T- Tanzania, Belarus, give me a break. Because <laughs> Cancun locked down. I mean, they're, right. they're more tyrannical than, uh, than uh, Massachusetts. And, and yeah, it's like so unpredictable. People that are like, oh, you know, these expat types. Hey, Panama, great place for freedom. Panama had one of the most draconian, like, only men can go out two hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays and only women two hours on when- Monday and Wednesday. Like, it's just weird. And, you know, you could say, let's go to uh, uh, Sweden or wherever it was. Well, they don't let any travelers in. So even if they have a better, you know, for their local population, like just all these things, you just realize, wow, my options are pretty limited. And you realize how global governance from states has become way you know, more like, than- Like the Sweden case is interesting because everybody talks about Sweden's great uh, uh, herd immunity strategy and openness. Well, if a year ago, the headlines in the New York Times said, uh, arbitrarily and without uh, uh, any kind of justification, Sweden has banned all meetings of people over 50. This is a huge infringement of rights. We would have been appalled. What is this? Has some sort of dictator taken over Sweden? But they did that and everybody calls them open. So yeah, and relative to Massachusetts, yeah, maybe so. <clears throat> Who would have thought that uh, one of the only freest, the, one of the freest places in the world, but Taiwan, very they use very, uh, almost, almost no mitigation strategies, which is just great. No stringency whatsoever. Um, very interesting. And, and also, by the way, hardly any infections or death, probably because the whole population already had SARS immunity, but it's another subject. But who would have believed that out of all the United States, only really uh, South Dakota uh, chose a, a purely constitutional solution and did almost no stringency whatsoever. And that was because their governor, uh, Christy Noem, is a Hayekian and gave a big Hayekian speech about how the experts don't have knowledge that the people have. She was beautiful. Very interesting. South Dakota. So if you want a place to move, but what happens when she gets kicked out of office? Well, right? that's, what I, that's what I feel like. And I can't even rely on things are at such a crazy state. I wouldn't be surprised that they're like, all right, we're sending in troops to this state because they're, they're risking, they're endangering everyone else by not locking down. Like oh, federalism right. is weaker than ever, you know? Or, or, or look at Melbourne right now, where, where, the, where the police are arresting people for posting on Facebook uh, objections to lockdown. They arrested a, a pregnant woman in her pajamas the other day. Uh, I saw that video. I, yeah, it was, it was grim and, and terrible. Now, normally you might look at that and say, well, that's an a, a evil human rights abuse. The UN should do something about this, right? Well, the UN. What's the UN? I mean, 99% of the governments participating in the UN did the same damn thing. So where's the moral credibility of the UN anymore? You know, I mean, ultimately, at this point, uh, the only thing you can really trust is, is freedom and human rights. But there's very few governments that are willing to respect that. We know that now. We didn't. I'm not sure we knew that even six months ago. So here's another thing we didn't know, or at least I didn't. Now, I, I have long since been less and less uh, optimistic about the prospects of sort of professional libertarianism, the well-funded nonprofit apparatus of professional libertarians, of which I was a part for many years. A lot of cool stuff, a lot of cool history there. But, you know, I moved out of that for a reason and and into entrepreneurship. When this hit, 
it went from, yeah, I don't think those groups are always that effective. And it's kind of hard for them to be with, you know, they just the donation model and stuff, but like, you know, they're doing good stuff largely to, oh my gosh, who is there? And AIER, where, where you are a, a writer, editor, you are one of the shining beacons and a place that, by the way, only a few years ago, I don't think was, was hardly ever uh, out there as much as you are now. So you've been able to take that. I know you and, and uh, Ed Stringham over there and some of the other people have done wonders with it. But the big names, you know, the Cato Institutes, the whatever. What is the point of libertarian organizations existing if not to say the things that are unpopular but true? You are funded because the theory is, well, the market's going to underproduce principled libertarianism. So we're going to donate to you so you can go ahead and do it. All these businessmen who donate to these places, all these wealthy people, they are part of the reason they do it is, hey, look, in my position, I can't go out and all day be an advocate for libertarian ideas because I have a business to run and I don't want to turn away customers and whatever, but I want to pay you to go do that all day because I love that. I need that voice. So you're paying these people to do that. And what do they do? They immediately start offering the most milk toast. Like the presumption of liberty is out the window. They're like, well, the presumption of lockdown works, uh, but liberty, if we can still afford liberty, maybe it's a good thing. Like Jeffrey, tell me, what happened to libertarianism and, and how did this reveal just how shallow and weak-spined it all is? So um, I have two points to make, and um, maybe there's a third that will occur to me. But the first one is a professional risk aversion. Uh, once, once you get a job in, in, in one of these, uh, you know, high-paying job in one of these places, uh, people like to keep their jobs. And, and taking positions that uh, will uh, elicit the disdain from the New York Times and <clears throat> get you in trouble and that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to, 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 to glow. And, and I tell you, we've faced all kinds of censorship and ridicule and disdain. And you know, it's, been, it's, been, it's been hard for us to take the positions we, we have. I think we've done a lot of good, but a lot of people just prefer to play it safe. We saw this after 9-11 too, you know, it was a similar situation. I didn't expect it would come down to this. Like, as you say, if you can't be against lockdowns. Eh, it, it's kind of, I'm sorry to interrupt. And I know I'm talking too much to be That's interviewed, right. but it, it reminds me of tenure. People make the theoretical argument you give professors tenure, then they'll be protected and they'll be able to be more radical. And yeah. it's like, oh, if you give these people well-paying jobs, they'll be protected and they'll be able to be more radical with their libertarian ideas. But somehow the opposite happens. They become more conservative and more afraid to be principled because instead That's of right. money and a job, maybe, maybe they're just looking for approval in the eyes of the political class or I don't know what. Yeah. Okay. I did think of a third point. A second one is an absence of historical knowledge on this subject in particular. Um, libertarianism tends to come out of the social sciences and we look at the history of politics and the history of wars and the history of this and that. But the one thing that people have not investigated is the history of viruses and the history of pandemics and the policy response. So there's a great deal of ignorance about that. For me, I've been researching that for 15 years with, with delight because I, I love the subject, but mostly that was just, that was just lost in people. People didn't know that Woodstock happened in a pandemic, you know, or that civil rights protest occurred in the presence of the Hong Kong flu <coughs> or that the 1950s, you know, Eisenhower was president and we had a very vicious flu that killed 116,000 Americans. Or that in 1948 through 51, we had a polio epidemic and that was grim and it was solved through private means with no shutdowns whatsoever. Like people, the libertarians are 
weirdly uncurious about the history of these pandemics. So they had no intellectual apparatus. And the third point, Isaac, I think is actually a much more serious one. Uh, the, the problem is that <clears throat> over the last um, 15 years, I would say, yeah, let's say 15 years, uh, the liberty movement has rallied around a kind of an a prioristic uh, first principles sort of idea, like, like here's our principle, the non-aggression principle or something like that. Here's our, um, our, our broad-based framework. Um, and, and I'm going to, out of my head now, apply it to everything I, I possibly can. And, and, and so when they looked at a virus, they looked at that and saw, oh, that's an invader and an aggressor. So, so we have to get rid of it. I, I, I don't know how to do that. Um, so I have to have the state do it. So it was a very, very simple-minded uh, confusion about the application of first principles. The problem is that some of the, like immunology and the nature and structure of viruses and the counterintuitive conclusion of herd immunity and how viruses interact with the immune system, that is not something you can learn from first principles. <laughs> it's something you have to learn through studying uh, the natural sciences and, and biology and chemistry and that sort of thing. And libertarians are just not interested in those subjects. So I think there was a real knowledge gap there too. So you can combine the risk aversion, the ignorance of pandemic history in the 20th century with a, a basic lack of understanding or, or even curiosity about how viruses work and interact with the uh, human immune system. All that combined to basically uh, uh, ca cause six months of unbelievable silence. And once they took that route, uh, now they're pot committed and, and they have to pretend as if that was the right decision. So, so, so we're not gonna see any change in that. That's why I think the, the ideological landscape is dramatically changing too. I mean, it's like we've got an anti-lockdown movement with very little overlap with, a, with what we used to call the liberty movement, which is an extraordinary thing to consider. It really is. It's funny to, to see how that's, broken down. I, I guess I, your observations are really keen. I hadn't thought of either any of those three. The two that, that I've kind of wondered about is, one, um, there has been a strain in libertarianism, especially sort of professional libertarianism, that has been mostly harmless because it hasn't really come into play with policy issues until now. A strain of scientism that kind of has a, it has a weird type of like, hey, um, we need, you know, the, the problem with governments is that they're going to appeal too much to um, the anti-science hillbilly voter. And we're going to kind of mock the people who are trying to use alternative medicines and whatever else. And like, you may be correct in mocking someone who's trying to use alternative medicines as a, they may be incorrect about how those work, but you're being very arrogant in dismissing the need in society for all of these people to have that freedom. And though it was not really explicitly stated that the government should force everyone to obey health experts, there was this undercurrent of kind of, and I think the new atheist movement in the extent to which it overlapped with the libertarian movement, that kind of like subset of libertarians, it's kind of like, let's sort of mock the ignorant and the hillbillies. The and they're right sometimes, but there was something in there that's a little too pandering to these scientist types. And that's what I saw in Silicon Valley too. They're like, we're the nerds. We're the analytical ones. We're the smart ones. This is our time to shine. We understand exponential growth. Let us take it from here. And there's this like this soft, this uh, willingness to tolerate technocracy because you feel like you've always been smarter than all those hillbillies out there. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I saw a little bit of that strain. Yeah, so and that's you know, intellectual snobbery and even, even a kind of cultural snobbery. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's funny you said the thing about principles. So I've, I've kind of seen that one in a different light. I've almost felt like, well, even if you didn't know anything about the history of viruses and you've never really paid much attention to this kind of stuff and you don't, you know, you don't, you're not well-versed on the topic, wouldn't libertarians' error supposedly be that they just presume liberty too much and just assume, ah, just let everybody be free and it will, it will handle everything. Instead, it was almost the opposite. Like, I feel like right. if you're going to be principled, how about the presumption of liberty? If you say, I don't know anything about epidemiology, right. but I'm going to assume as a starting point that it's on you to justify violating human rights to me. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. on me to justify not violating human rights, right? Like that yeah. burden of proof, it was just seemed yeah. to be accepted by everyone that the default position is take away human rights. And then yeah. you have to explain reasons why you shouldn't do that based on the science of epidemiology. And it just, that was right. a surprise to me that where the presumption of, of um, you know, the burden of proof lies. Well, I must say one thing that's always bothered me a little bit about the way uh, libertarianism has come to be formulated over the last 15 years is as an alternative ethic. And I, I never really liked that because liberalism, broadly speaking, rose up within the framework of, of what you might call, oh God, my words, a, a Western understanding of normal morality, you know, but libertarianism began to kind of, even, even from the early 70s, imagined itself to be something completely different from, from the things that people have always believed. So these, this, this sort of uh, desire to manufacture out of whole cloth a new um, moral system uh, that's disconnected from anything that preceded it, I think tempted people in towards a, a kind of constructivist outlook. Like, like I, I, know, I know what harm is. I know what aggression is. And I know what should happen in the light of aggression. And that, 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 that sort of uh, neologistic uh, ethical position overrode the suspicion of statism, the suspicion of the state, and the presumption of liberty. For some reason, uh, I, I think it has something to do with the way libertarianism came to be packaged and sold in the last couple of generations, not as an extension of the old liberal outlook, but, but, as, but as a kind of neologistic ethical system that is made up out of whole cloth, a discovery out of the, the, the brow of Zeus, so to speak. That, man, that is a great insight, Jeff. I hadn't thought of that. And it's funny when you think back to some of the I know you know uh, Walter Grinder and some of these kind of old time guys who were around at the, the founding of some of these. They often still use that language, classical liberal or true liberalism. And they're talking about a tradition that That's right. is very natural. Like it's, it's things that humans already want and value versus, hey, everybody, you have the wrong values. Uh, and then you're also going about it in the wrong way, right? Like that is, that is a really good. That's a really good insight, that construction. Well, you know, it, and I remember the first time, Isaac, that uh, I had sort of, as they say, banned a libertarian for many years, you know, out of reading of mostly new works and that sort of thing. Um, and, and then I, I sat uh, listening to a lecture by Ralph Rako, and this great historian from, from a, a, a CUNY Buffalo, I guess it was, City University of New York, Buffalo. And, and he spoke of libertarianism as being a kind of distillation or a, uh, the successor or the inheritor of the great liberal tradition. I mean, I was like, what's that? And next thing you know, I'm hearing about like 
like like Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and uh, Montesquieu and Saint Thomas Aquinas and and this gradual uh, you know the, the tradition that bega began to develop in the early Middle Ages and 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 unfolded with, with ever more layers of emancipation to ever more groups towards the creation of a society of, of opportunity, aspiration, and equal freedoms for all. And I had never heard that story in my life. I didn't know anything about that. I left that that lecture series by Ralph Reka going. You know, I feel like I'm just getting to know myself for the first time. Even though I had been like a libertarian for a very long time, I didn't even know who, who I didn't know my, what my true ideological personality really was. So there was something that happened in, in the 70s era of libertarianism that severed this new thing we called libertarianism from everything that had preceded. And don't forget, I mean, I love Ayn Rand. I admire her and I can talk about her glories all day. But one thing that was weird about her was her claim to be absolutely new, you know, that she had only one predecessor and that was Aristotle, that she was coming up with something, a, an ethic that humanity had never before encountered. All right, that's a problem. That's a problem because you're, you're severing your, your, your belief structure from, from 500 years of human experience, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's likely to end you in trouble, probably. That's a hard one these days because we're in an era where claiming any kind of lineage or any kind of inspiration from anyone who you could dig up dirt on is considered bad. Like everybody has to like be completely an entity unto the, all of my beliefs are just completely unique. I can't, I don't want to say that I was ever inspired by Thomas Jefferson because he owned slaves or that I was ever inspired by, you know, the ancient Greeks, they own slaves too, or like whatever. I think people are overly paranoid about that, but there is this yeah, yeah. feeling in which everyone feels that they have to completely detach themselves from any broader tradition. And again, I hate collectivism more than probably anybody out there. And I'm an individualist, but the understanding of a broader dialogue, a broader tradition within which you take part, this ongoing conversation called society, I think that's a really important insight, John. I hadn't realized to what extent the libertarian movement, the modern libertarian movement, has kind of attempted to divorce itself from that, and, and maybe that's the cause of some of these issues. I, I think it was inadvertent. Uh, it wasn't even intentional. Uh, part of it all traces back to New York Intellectual Society in the uh, 60s and 70s, where, where every upcoming intellectual wanted to have his own school, you know, uh, his or her own school and his own followers. And, and so the, the way to get followers is to basically canonize yourself, right? Um, I, I know all things. Uh, I'm speaking all truth to you, you know? And, and, and that's, a, that's a really bad habit. One of the things I, I do think is really important for intellectual life, and it's true for commercial life and every, every aspect of anything is that we need to stop uh burning witches and making saints out of people you know Ooh. we 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 just we should learn from the good and discard the bad it's very simple st thomas aquinas is a very good example and here's a guy who was asked the question um uh, what should the state do? And he said, well, you know, the state shouldn't do things that get rid of prostitution. That's a, it's a, even if prostitution is bad, it shouldn't do that because you're going to create more harm. What the state should do is punish murder, theft, and such like. All right, that's basically a liberal view. Now, another time somebody came to him and said, is it okay to burn heretics? And he said, yes, it is okay to burn heretics. <laughs> okay, so, all right, that's wrong, all right? So, you know, you can learn from one while discarding the other. And, and, and that's called intellectual maturity.
it's funny to see uh, in modern examples. I, I always like kind of watching the way that libertarians respond to uh, like Elon Musk, for example. Yeah. So Musk starts coming out. One of the only kind of big name, certainly people in the tech scene, being pretty hardcore, like, hey, this is America. This is ridiculous. All these lockdowns, we're not going to stand for it. That's right. And the libertarians torturing themselves with like, well, I can't believe you're retweeting that. That guy takes subsidies. And it's like, yes, it is possible to completely disagree with some things that Elon Musk does, but to proudly retweet a good tweet that makes a good argument. <laughs> you know? I know. Which reminds me of my favorite technology of 2020, the mute button on Twitter. <laughs> All right, Jeff, I want to I bring it home with a final question for you. And this is one I've never, I've never really had a clear uh, a thought for myself, like what is the, the approach here, but about language. I've been quite shocked at how, I, you know, when you read 1984, you assume that he's being uh, playful. He's exaggerating for the point, for the purpose of emphasis. Like they wouldn't really create a department and call it the Department of Truth and their job is to make lies or a Department of Peace and their job. Come on, like these, this is too absurd. But we're living in a world where we have these double think phrases like social distancing. Um, the war of words. You're a man of, of the pen. You're a man of words. Do you believe this is one of those, we can't accept phrases like the new normal. We must resist them. We must attack that. We, if you let the language go, then everything goes with it. Or is this one of those, do you see it as like, fine, they're going to use whatever language they want to. Even like the phrase Karen, it used to be someone who would wag your finger and tell you to wear a mask. And now somehow they're trying to turn it into someone who doesn't wear a mask, right? It's like this meme, mimetic warfare and linguistic warfare. Do you engage on that level or do you say, forget I, about it? I do. It. I, I, I don't like to use anything that's, that's, that's structured to deceive people. And, and a word like social distancing is fundamentally deceptive. So instead of social distancing, I just use the phrase forced human separation. And that's what we're talking about here. You know, uh, I won't talk targeted layered containment <laughs> because I think that's it's complete nonsense. Curve flattening. I mean, it's an untenable model. You don't know where these curves are. You don't even know how to change them. You don't know if anything government is doing can possibly change them. So I will not uh, adopt this new language. I think what we need to do is alert people to the fact that they're being manipulated into adopting a new language. And, 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 and it's very easy. God, you know, Isaac, very early on in the lockdowns, it was really interesting the extent to which people really bought into this thanks to this constant, constant media barrage. You know, I don't watch television, but a lot of people do. And I remember very early on talking to a very nice man and uh, he's just a worker around here. Somebody, and he said to me, he goes, well, you know, it's not so bad if we all do the right thing and all follow the advice of the experts, uh, we can open up in a couple of weeks and everything will be fine. And, and you know, that was interesting. I just got a chill down my spine. I thought this, this is really an example of public manipulation through, through, through language and, and convincing this poor man that he's an idiot and that he has to just turn on CNN and, and do everything they say. We need to get past that. I think this is, this is so important. Um, I have to tell you, Isaac, I think my book is good. Um, and I, don't, I have no doubt it's good, Jeffrey. You've been on fire during this thing. Yeah, I, I'm, I hesitate to say it's good only because I never know what, what parts of my writing are good, which parts are bad. But like everybody still loves Bourbon for Breakfast. And I kind of like it, even though it's a little bit naive and silly. I, I still kind of like it, but um, 
but I put out things that I, I, I generally don't try to critique myself. You know, I write because it's a little bit cathartic and then I just move on to the next day and I never look back, never look back. Um, but I have to say that I think there might be something special uh, here. Um, it's about 220 pages. It's called Liberty or Lockdown. It's got an introduction by George Gilder, uh, with whom I've spent a ton of time over the last, well, you know who that is. I've spent a ton of time with him over the last six months, and he's really been a mentor to me throughout this whole thing. And I've worked really hard to have an integrated package. And I think it's got a lot of information that people don't know about. It's got a good tone. It's got a lot of fire. A lot of it's written in a white heat, but, it, but it's still well documented. And finally, I think it might do some good, you know? Um, you know, there's this terrible moment in Mises' life. By the way, I'm not comparing myself to him, just so you are clear. But, but he's, he's a stand-in for anybody who aspires to be an intellectual, including you and everyone. But he was coming over on the boat from Geneva, and he said, I set out to be a reformer and only became a historian of decline. Mm. Well, I think there have been moments over the last six months where all of us imagine that maybe that was true of ourselves, that, that we're just mere historians of decline. Uh, but the truth is that Mises came over here and had a great career and ended up actually in many ways changing the world. You know, he, he was wrong. He was wrong. And he underestimated the, the power of his own ideas and his capability of making a difference in the world. I think, I f this is why I think this book matters. I don't think that it's going to somehow cause this you know, dramatic changes or something like that. But just on the margin, it might affect enough people's outlooks and then their outlook can affect other people's outlooks. And I think it could it stand some good chance of making a, a difference on the margin, which at this point in my life, that's really all I can hope to do. And then just see what happens. But Jeff, I've never been more excited. Well, I feel, uh, you know, to two different things come to mind. Actually, both of them are related to the Bible, but they're not religious points. But that, um, and I don't even remember where, it, I grew up in the church, so I remember this phrase, but I don't remember where it came from. But um, you, were, you were called or you were made for such a time as this. I feel that so much for you. Like this moment, this epoch over the last six months, like this is why, this is, this is the stuff you were made for. Your message, your voice, your approach this is the moment where I think it is needed the most. And then I also think of Albert J. Knox's famous essay, Isaiah's Job. Yeah. And I've had to come back to that one time and time again, where just remember, like there is a remnant out there. And Jeffrey, I know, and I know you see hints of it on Twitter. There is a remnant listening, following you. They're going to buy this book. They're going to give it to their friends. And there is, there is a, and there's this weird game theoretical thing out there where there are so many people who think this is all bull, but they're also like, yeah, but if I'm the one that bucks the trend, I'll just end up in prison. I'll be alone. Nobody else will. So I guess we just obey and hope it all blows over. It's kind of that, uh, I think of communist Poland, where the, the underground was actually bigger than the above ground. And nobody knew it until all of a sudden it just emerged. And like, I think you are one of a very few, but a very few key voices who are speaking to that remnant and that remnant is bigger than anyone realizes and it's growing and there's something very real and whatever happens with this i think you can feel proud in knowing that in the great catastrophe of 2020 you did what you knew was right and what you knew was principled and even if it just helped a few people on the margin 
you can be proud and you can sleep well at night uh, knowing that you did that. So I just want to commend you on your work and, and tell everybody to go get Liberty or Lockdown. Um, I am uncomfortable by, by um, your, your praise, but I accept it on behalf of all my friends and colleagues who have contributed so much. My, <laughs> my introduction includes a, a section of thank yous that's about that long, if you can believe it. You know, this is really a community effort and uh, God, we've learned so much from each other and, um, and we're prepared, I think better prepared f uh, to go into a future fighting for, for what's right and what's true and what's just, um, I think in the years ahead. So, but thank you, Isaac, for saying that. I love it, Jeff. Great to talk with you, man. Okay. All the best.